0: Hello everybody, I am delighted to be here today with Steve Morris, my good friend and just such an incredible big-hearted person. We're talking today about beautiful questions in challenging times. And I also have to say that Steve is somebody who, the way he communicates and who he is has stood out to me from the very start. I, when Pivot was launching, I was a guest on Jonathan Field's Good Life Project podcast, And Steve was one of, I think, the only person to send a handwritten thank you note for me being a guest on that show that has never happened before. So I get this thank you note, this thank you card in the mail, and we corresponded over email. And I think it was two years later at Camp GLP, Jonathan and Stephanie Fields' summer camp that is now sadly retired, um, I got to take Steve's workshop on cultivating a life of curiosity. And we finally got to meet and connect in person And he's just as wonderful in person as he is online and in all our correspondence. So Steve, thank you so much for being who you are and for being here on the Pivot Podcast.
1: Oh, Jenny, thank you so much. And thanks for the kind words. And yeah, I remembered uh, quite fondly the um, my introduction into your world, uh, both through the lens of Jonathan, Jonathan and the beautiful conversation that you had with him. And then it dove me into your wonderful book, Pivot, uh, which just arrived in my world as these things do or tend to do just when you need them most. And so after that podcast, I I dove directly into that book, which um, was at a point in my life where I was making some significant changes, selling a business, transitioning into much more artistry and into my consultancy, which is the work that I'm doing now. So I just am thrilled to have this conversation with you here today.
0: Oh, thank you. I have a huge smile on my face too. And don't you just love that about books that they jump off the shelf or you get a recommendation at the perfect time. I just, there's nothing I love more than book serendipity. And I'm Uh, honored that Pivot was that for you.
1: Yeah, I think books are just so potent and powerful. And it's almost like um, when, when one writes one, they begin to take on a life of their own. And they do seem to have that ability to invite and call people uh, from afar or from a bookshelf or from your Amazon shopping cart or whatever that might be. And, uh, you know, a title of a book can just reach out and speak to you almost like a piece of art can do. So yours did that for me in such a potent and powerful way, and I am deeply appreciative for that.
0: I'm so happy to hear that. And speaking of books, you are working on one. Let me read your professional bio just so that listeners get a sense of who you are. And then of course, they'll get a better sense through our conversation. But real quick, just so you know a little more about Steve's professional background. He's a brand and culture advisor, author, and speaker who partners with business leaders to mine, articulate, and activate their unique unique belief system to create organizational integrity, connected cultures, and evolved brands. He's currently working on his book, The Beautiful Business, An Actionable Manifesto to Evolve Your Business, Brand, and Culture, which will be published later this year by Conscious Capitalism Press. Steve lives in San Diego with his wife, two boys, and Aussie shepherd mix, Coco, and he's a surfer, yogi, and trail runner. And I have to say, Aussie shepherd mix, I'm melting over here because I had an Australian (laughs) shepherd patches for 16 years. And now a German Shepherd, rider, as you know, as we've gushed about our yeah. dogs. <laughs> so I can't wait to meet Coco in person someday.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, we share deep affinity for our, our canine uh, family members. And uh, the shepherds in particular have this uh, Velcro quality to them. And they really just sort of stick to you and bond to you. And I just love that.
0: Oh, I know. It's the best. I have a hard time teaching rider not to like visit the bed, like jump on the bed or the couch because I'm like, oh, you're so cute. There you are. (laughs) 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 Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And I also want to let listeners know right up front, Steve has created a free care package for COVID-19. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. And you have studied with poets like David White and Mm -hmm. you, you... poetry itself is a resource for you during challenging times. So I would love, Steve, do you have a poem in your mind or on your heart that we could maybe kick off with today?
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, So in the poetic tradition, uh, there's this metaphor of darkness and david white has a a poem and david i I had the honor to study with for uh, a little over a year up at wibby island off um off seattle in, in puget sound and he's got a very famous poem called sweet darkness which i would love to share when your eyes are tired the world is tired also when your vision is gone no part of the world can find you It's time to go into the dark, where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There, you can be sure you are not beyond love. Let the dark be your womb tonight, and the night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world is made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except for the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Again, the poetic tradition and even the artistic tradition of darkness is a metaphor for the imaginative realm where anything is possible. And as we experience in all in our own different ways, this time of sequestering ourselves off into our, our tightly knit family units and our, our, our domiciles, uh, however we've made them. Uh, we actually have the ability and maybe even we're forced to go into our own realms of darkness. And, you know, darkness has this other stigma associated with it in that it's this negative Um, daunting type of thing. Um, But when we think about the human condition, and the core beautiful attributes that we have, uh, such as the combination of the heart and the mind, part of the beauty of the mind is that, especially in the human condition, is that we can imagine anything. And in these times, we can imagine the most horrific catastrophe or let our imagination spin out with the fear and anxiety that exists right now in our world. Or, conversely, we have the opportunity to imagine any type of future that we want and activate that future. And when we engage our hearts into that particular conversation or equation, we get to tap into the elements of love and courage. And the the French word for courage is coer, which actually means heart, and it's an old French word. So those two ideas are tethered together. And when we think about the combination of our imaginative self and that which we can create and manifest on our own and the courage to step into those things as we reorient or create our own way through this darkness that we're in right now, I see it all as an invitation. And I think actually the questions that we ask ourselves at this point are really orienting elements that can create the horizon of our future.
0: I love your work around this and the studies that you've done around reimagining life through questions. How Maybe you could define for listeners and where the notion of a beautiful question comes from and even how you have carried that forward into your work, both with individuals and companies and how we could even apply it now. I know that's a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just a, a brief sort of background. Again, this tethers back to David White, but um, so David White was uh, quite close friends with the poet philosopher, John O'Donohue. And when John O'Donohue passed away, suddenly at the age of 57, uh, he died in his sleep overnight. And this was, I think in 2012, uh, there was a workshop that that John O'Donohue was, was scheduled to uh, deliver. And it was all about uh, beauty and questions. And the organizers of that particular workshop approached David White and said, hey, would you would you mind delivering this workshop? And David's response was essentially, well, I'd, I'd love to deliver this and step in for John, but I really need to make it my own. And it was at that point where he began to think about what a beautiful question actually meant to him and, and how then that one could work with that. So, Again, I don't. I don't want to take credit for defining what a beautiful question is. This is really his definition of it. But the way he would define a beautiful question is that it's a question first and foremost that it can't be answered with the strategic mind. You know, we in business we think about you know, okay, let's let's, let's design a strategy, especially in this crisis, so that we can get through this. A beautiful question. It's, it's one that Rilke would say is a lived question. It's a question that we experience. And it's a question that we might necessarily not have an answer to, which leads us to the second attribute of the beautiful question, which is a beautiful question is one that can reorient our trajectory or our horizon. And by that, we essentially mean that It can take us from one set of attention, which might be in in these particular crisis-oriented times, uh, a a perception or or focus around some of the negative and fear-based attributes into a reoriented direction that says, what are the possibilities that exist during this time and what are the beautiful benefits that might exist during this time? And so those are the key attributes to the beautiful question and really... Um, when we think about it, it's they're not necessarily questions to be answered immediately. And in fact, the asking of the question is sometimes more important than the answering of it. Because when one begins to, as Rilke says, live with this new question or live the question itself, we actually begin to step into a whole new life and a life of, of a completely different set of opportunities in front of us.
0: You gave some really outstanding examples in your workshop. And I'm going to riff now. I was trying to find that notebook from 2018, but I didn't find it fast enough. But questions like, and then I'd love to hear some of your favorites. What is my highest calling? Hmm. What is my deeper truth? What am I not saying? Uh, What is my heart's desire? These are ones that have come to me since I took that workshop with you. What Hmm. are some of your favorite beautiful questions that reorient you or When you're working with others,
1: well, you know it's so interesting because I I think about them a lot, and and depending on where I'm at in my world or what's happening sort of in my life and the things around me, uh, the questions will change. And I there's actually a handful of beautiful questions that I've been thinking about um, uh, before we got on on the conversation here. I was talking about uh, you know I've been walking the beaches and, and the canyons here, um, walking around with poetry. I walk, I walk around with poetry in my head and I sort of speak it out loud, um, which probably makes me sound utterly crazy (laughs) because I'm literally just talking to myself, but I'm speaking poems. And sometimes I'll be walking the beach and, um, uh, like I was just a couple of days ago. And I thought of, uh, a couple of questions that might be pertinent for us right now. So one for instance might be, What if we saw this time, this time of crisis, actually as a time of awakening, an invitation to instigate and foster our own creativity or our own version of lived artistry? Uh, You know, a question like that might make us think differently about how we show up in service to other individuals or even organizations during this time. Um, The other question, it was an interesting question, and and I sure hope you don't put me in the spot for this because I don't have an answer to it, but it's so potent that it sort of jarred me awake, which is, what promises can I make to myself here and now as I experience this crisis that that will change me on the other side of it? That
0: is good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That will change me on the yeah. other side of it. And to your first question, I feel so clearly and urgently that we are being called to rise as individuals, as a co- collective, as society. And and I think it's so powerful to say, "What if I saw this time of crisis as a time of awakening?" And the, mm. the beautiful question I'm asking is, "How am I being called to rise?" And one that I put forward to the momentum community is how can I serve? And I think even that question, how can I serve is a heart based question that we can live. And every day the answer might be different, but we can wake up every day and say, how can I serve and live that? And as well, I love this one that you shared what promises, wow, what promises can I make to myself here and now as I experience this that will change me on the other side?
1: Yeah. It's, it's so beautiful and jarring for me that I, I really need to, as Roke said, you know, kind of live with that a little bit. Cause I don't, like, I want to answer that. It might, the inclination typically when we when we bump into questions like this is I want to answer it with my strategic mind. And um, and so I work with a lot of different business leaders across the country, as I know you do. And so as I pose that question in some of the conversations that I'm having with business leaders, I I actually allow them or invite them rather into beginning to answer that question with their strategic mind. So for instance, that might take the the, the direction of you know, I'm no, I'm no longer, I'm going to promise, I'm gonna swear up and down that I'm no longer gonna pull back on my marketing, I'm gonna make sure that I have a strong and solid base, or I'm really going to double down on my uh core beliefs with my within in my organization. Those are mostly strategic oriented responses, but the other side of the promises that I can make myself is you know, might go into, how can I be much more true to myself during this time and hold that truth as I continue on the other side of this? And what does that promise sound like to me? And, and how, do I, how do I allow that to sink both into the marrow of my being, but also into the rituals and the practices that I will employ or am employing now and will promise to continue?
0: I think that's so important, and that question of how can I be more true to myself, don't you feel like, at least here in the States where more and more, more and more people are being asked to shelter at home and do physical distancing, don't you think so many people are getting a chance now to kind of go inward a little bit, literally into their homes, but, and I know some homes and environments are going to be very chaotic. In South Africa, they just said, no more walking the dog, which I don't know what you do with that dog energy, <laughs> and Then mm. like, if you can't even walk the dog. But I do wonder how many people will be shaped by this opportunity to work and be at home and how their families will change, how their relationship to work might change, how the relationship to their physical health might change, and what truisms, what inner truths are going to emerge where people say, I don't want to go back to the way things were.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, it feels to me like we're getting, we've gone back to, and and that the, that statement's even assumptive in that we ever had it, but we've gone back to a manner of simplicity of the way that we are, like even the way that we're shopping right now, and perhaps even like making and preparing food. A lot of the stories that I'm hearing is like, One of the things that I do to uh, console myself is to bake. And, you know, a friend of mine was saying, I've I've baked more food than I know what to do with, and so I just give it out to friends. And will we continue that? And will people make a promise to themselves to continue that type of self-care? You know, the things, you know, my wife is a yoga instructor, and she's doing so many more online yoga classes and the intend- the attendance um, at her yoga studio is actually increased because of people's desire for self-care during this time and and the other thing that i'm hearing is people are practicing much more daily meditation uh, mostly because they have the time and space to do so. So people who were had the excuses of, well, I'm not going to meditate daily because my life is so busy and all that kind of thing. Now they have the time and the space because their commute is gone, for instance, or some of their social activities are gone and they're just choosing to go inward. And I find that to be an utterly beautiful thing.
0: One of the questions you sent me when we were brainstorming about this podcast, you said, what does my self-identity look like? when the world as I knew it is changing yeah, and, and then even this is getting pretty meta, but you had sent to me, what are some potent questions that I can be asking myself to reorient my life trajectory? That seems like one of the ultimate beautiful questions because it then creates the beautiful question that you might need in that moment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think about your world, Jenny, and, and the, the, um, the practice of pivot or pivoting, uh, which, you know, uh, in my opinion, the, there's a, likely a series of thresholds of beautiful questions that one would actually process and go through in order to pivot in a direction that serves them and perhaps even humanity in the best way possible. I wonder what questions you've you've heard from folks who. Maybe are that are common beautiful questions as they consider pivoting.
0: Well, I love first of all. I love that you called it the practice of pivoting. That is so beautiful, and it's how I often talk about pivot. I say the big secret is there's no there there. Every single person I have met since I started working on this book in 2014 says pivot. Oh, I'm pivoting right now. I need that book, and everybody. So many people that I spoke to felt alone in their pivot. They felt that they were the only one. They were out on pivot island, you know, and the rest of the world had it figured out. And they were the one that was feeling confused or at a plateau or at a pivot point, or maybe they had just gotten pivoted. And the fact is, I call them high net growth individuals. But the most agile pivoters are the ones who realize that it's an ongoing practice, that pivoting is a continuous process and we get better at it. How do we get better at it? By practicing. And what are we getting better at? The skill of navigating change and uncertainty. And Mm. so this time is calling all of us to practice pivoting. I I mean, it's so crazy (laughs) what is going on because things change one day to the next. I mean, every time I've recorded a podcast the next day, the news was different. Like <laughs> It was already a little bit out of date within 24 hours, if not two hours. Yeah. So we're all being asked to practice pivoting. And some of the powerful questions that I've heard and that I encourage people to ask. So this one's my favorite. And I think there was a research project done. So I can't say that I invented this one. But if you were the main character in a movie, and we are all sitting there with our popcorn on the edges of our seats, watching the movie that is you. How is this event happening at the perfect time with the perfect characters for your evolution and highest growth? What are you meant to learn or do differently to get through to the other side? So, it's like we're watching the climax of the movie. We're watching the moment of breakthrough where the perfect challenge has just planted itself in front of you. And you think the world is ending, the sky is falling. And we, the audience, are rooting for you. And we know you're going to make it to the other side. You just need to look at a certain blind spot or a blessing in disguise or evolve in some way and grow to get to the other side. So, what is that? Like, now I turn it over to the person I'm talking to or any of you listening, what is that moment? How are you the main character in this movie? What is this moment in your hero's journey asking of you? How is it asking you to grow and evolve? And so th- that that's really a favorite. And then I also think um, just, you know, if I would summarize that, something that's often helpful for me is just, how is this the perfect growth opportunity at the perfect time happening in the perfect way? And yeah. that kind of takes the sting out of, I wish this wasn't happening, or I, I wish this would be easier. Because sometimes, most of the time, I think the biggest lessons for ourselves and the biggest eye-opening experiences come in a package that looks unwanted. <laughs> you know, Like, wait a second, <laughs> I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this to be so hard or frustrating. And yet those are the experiences that shape us and the ones that actually give us the opportunity to evolve, which is so less likely to happen when everything's good and we're just kind of coasting, which is super fun, too. Just life doesn't always work that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what you've just described there, Jenny, uh, so wonderfully is that th- this uh, in the arc of the story and, and the theatrical and, and um, movie Um, story arc world. Uh, You've described this thing called the moment of truth. And the moment of truth is something where all the reality that existed prior to that immediately changes. And all of a sudden it's like the world opens up like in a technicolor manner. So we know this from like Wizard of Oz, for instance, right? Uh, And that, that particular moment of truth is when, that world opened up and it was a whole new unseen world of possibility that now exists that didn't exist before. And I do believe that there's a, there's a particular power in pausing in that particular moment and saying, asking oneself, what is, this, what is the truth of this particular moment revealing to me that I wasn't aware of before so that I can carry forward into my new awareness or frankly, even my new life and i i also find it very interesting that the work that you do and the work that i do uh, as you read my um, my bio at the very beginning, it's so interesting, by the way, hearing somebody else read your bio. Uh,
0: <laughs> I know. I change mine all the time. I make edits I, like once a week.
1: <laughs> it was just really interesting. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that is what I do. Oh, that's me. Um, I sound
0: pretty cool. I didn't even read the whole thing, that you've been in business 25 years, work with more than 3,000 business leaders, 250 global and regional companies. I mean, you're a pretty impressive guy.
1: The, yeah well I actually I was less less listening to that, more listening <laughs> to the brand evolution part of it, and where um, you know it 's so interesting I think where your work and my work intersect uh, or perhaps um, we 're doing quite similar things, perhaps in very different ways, what you would call pivot, I would call evolution. And, you know, uh, and really what I'm doing essentially in the evolutionary language is borrowing heavily from Darwin who talked about, uh, evolution, the evolution, not just of man, but of all species. And, you know, Darwin gets a pretty bad rap for talking about survival of the fittest and things like that. And most people misinterpret his, his work in that realm where the reality is, you know, he talked more about love, uh, compassion, communication, collaboration, and the ability to work with other species in order to evolve and adapt to the situations around us. And so, you know, we as humans, and really, frankly, all living creatures need to grow. And in the business world, the way I, I tend to couch it is, you know, growth for growth's sake is not necessarily the best thing. But evolution is a necessity because the world is evolving around us. And the more that we have the ability to adapt to those circumstances, the more that we can, to use your language, pivot and create anew and reinvent ourselves as we need to, just based on who we are. Because as we learn new things, such as the moment of truth that you've just unveiled, when we know those new truths, all of a sudden, we have new trajectories, new landscapes, new worlds of opportunity and possibility in front of us, and we then can then can strive for those things that 's the beauty of evolution and you know as we think about what 's actually happening perhaps within this crisis is that you know there will be i believe a, a handful of people and maybe many, many, many people in businesses that come out on the other side of this. Much stronger because of the inter- introspective, <coughs> excuse me, introspective work that's been done during this time.
0: A hundred percent, and in fact, that's Nassim Taleb's book *Antifragile* is exactly about that, which was such a point of inspiration for me with Pivot, which was not just how do we be resilient during times of change, how do we grow, grow stronger from it, and that's the whole concept of antifragility, which is that a glass is fragile, it breaks. A tree in the wind is resilient. It blows from side to side, but it stays standing. And then for antifragility, he gives the example of a hydra, the mythical creature where you cut mm. off one head, two grow in its place. And I love what you said about evolution too. One, the, the kickoff quote now that I share when I do a pivot workshop is from Heraclitus, and I'm sure you're going to know this one, but he says, no person ever steps in the same river twice for it's not the same river and they're not the same person. And I share that with companies and people, because even if you don't think you're pivoting, you're never stepping in the same river twice. You are a new person every day. And the companies change every day. The market changes every day. So even people who don't think they're in an active pivot, this is actually the underlying reality of our existence that we're flowing in a river. We're not standing in place. Even though sometimes it seems like that, and I just love your this light you're shining on the possibility of growing stronger from all this, and we can't even know what that's going to look like yet. But to hold the faith that that is the process that is shaping us and that is happening right now, I think is such a beautiful intention.
1: And and Jenny, I'm curious do you do you witness that that particular stream analogy and metaphor? is an invitation to embrace the perpetual change. And do you, I guess further, do you feel that people are embracing that during this time here and now?
0: Definitely. I think think on some level, I've never asked people their reaction to that quote alone, but I get the sense that in a way it's reassuring because sometimes, and I can speak for myself, for most of my 20s, I felt highly anxious. And I wrote a blog post once called 10,000 Hours of Neuroses. I should read it on the podcast just so that I could like get it back out there. (laughs) And I felt that the one thing I had gotten good at that I had 10,000 hours in was being anxious, nervous, worried, people-pleasing, perfectionistic, stressed. That's what I perfected (laughs) for about a long time. And I think for so many people, there's this underlying hum of anxiety that is navigating change. That is the constant evolution that we're being asked for certain growth-oriented individuals. They love it. That's the adrenaline and the excitement. And I actually think right now, the difference is that at least right now, everyone is admitting, accepting, and talking about that reality. Wow, nothing is as it was. (laughs) I'm even hearing medical professionals talk about pivoting their strategy. So Mm -hmm. at least now, these conversations about grief and change and nothing is as, it's, as it was, at least because the global collective is talking about it in that way, I think we all get to exhale with a sense of camaraderie in a way that, oh, I'm not alone in my existential anxiety about what it is to be human. And on one hand, love creature comforts and stability, while at the same time, being called to evolve every day in every way. And sometimes you feel like doing that and other times you don't, but that's the nature of being human and of evolution, as you talked about, Steve. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And Rilke talks about it from the perspective of, you know, being patient towards all that's unresolved in your heart and try to live the questions. And, and even that stepping into the stream of you know, the question of what stream am I stepping into now and how, how how do I meet that stream in a way that is um, that makes me more able for the circumstances that uh, that life um, that the that the current situations and circumstances of life that are being presented to me at this point? You know, our ability as humans to adapt and evolve. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a beautiful thing to remember. And I wrote this in a blog post um, a couple of weeks ago about, you know, taking the helm of leadership, and that, you know, generations before us have been through this, and and I didn't write this, but worse, or just as bad. And we actually can carry the lineage and the heritage of all the power of our ancestors, uh, be they our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and all that they've been through, knowing that they survived and even thrived. And the evidence of that is that we are here now and we've created this amazing planet. And we, we are also now the adults, the ones in charge, the ones with the hands on the helm to be able to exercise our own creativity and our own leadership ability to really create that new future that we envision. It's a beautiful thing to remember that.
0: I, I love that you said, we're the adults now. this this occurred to me this occurred to me last year so at the time of this recording i'm 36 i'll turn 37 in october age Mm -hmm. doesn't matter but i'm just giving context sometimes i'm curious but so it was last summer my cousin's daughter who is 16 too young to get a hotel but she got into this really cool new york times fashion internship for two weeks so my cousin asked is it okay if she stays with you until they open the dorms for a day or two and when I realized that Michael and I were the adults here and we had a guest room that my cousin's daughter was staying in, I like lost my mind. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, we're, the, we're like the weird quirky couple that lives in New York that when you need the spare bedroom for your, for your daughter or whoever, like she comes to stay with us and she's the one who had social plans and had all these fun things to do in New York. And I just had that moment. I'm like, okay. Yeah. We're the adults now. That is so weird. We're not the ones crashing on someone's couch. They're crashing here. <laughs> I mean, you have right. two kids, so you already right. know that you're an adult, but... <laughs>
1: I do. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, like if we were to transition that particular idea, of what is adulting and what is leadership? Um, uh, you know, and this is something I talk about in, in the corporate work, which is, you know, there's a lot of organizations now that want to have a flat or, or reasonably flat organization. So then... And with that, it begs the question: Well, well, who's the leader, uh, or what is a leader within an organization that's flat? Now, certainly, the CEO and the you know the C-suite level and the VPs and the managers all have a certain level of leadership responsibility. However, I make the case that everyone within the organization is a leader because even if the intern who comes in on week one and they're just fresh out of college or or whatever their experience is they're still given a project uh, and they are still part of a team. And within that, they have the agency within themselves to uh, work on that project in the way that the organization needs and they're responsible for delivering some type of set of results. So within that, at the very least, they're leading that project. And if it's truly a flat organization, that they're invited to have a voice at the table and speak their perspective and contribute in a way. And that's also leadership. So when we think about, like, you know, what can we do now here from a leadership perspective as we're hunkered down and sequestered off? um, We have the opportunity to take a microphone and tap into a typewriter or speak into a Zoom conversation and help others through this process. And I think that's part of the beautiful aspect of our communal hum- humanity is to be there in service to others in a time of need. Because the reality is you and I are both going to need it at some point too. And I might need that this afternoon, or I might need that the minute I get off this this conversation with you. And I sure hope that somebody else is there to, to help um, shine the light for me.
0: Absolutely. And that's happened to me. It happened last week. I was super happy, upbeat, recording a podcast. And then within 30 minutes, I was in a ball under the desk. (laughs) It's just like that sometimes. You say at the top of your about page, there's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in a common cause with love at the core. Hmm. I know that that speaks to your vision of the beautiful business. I also love what you just said about how do we lead during this time. And in your care package for COVID-19, you say, what can brands do, care for your customers, and care for your team? Mm. I would love to know from you, from what you're seeing, because now it's been made into a meme that the wave of communications that has gone out in the last few weeks from every single company ever on every mailing list you've ever been subscribed to, we've seen a real range of responses in communication. I would love to know, what's your take? And h- mm. what does it mean to be a beautiful business at this time, even as many businesses may be in kind of a life or death moment of the business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, like you, I'm I'm creating a lot of content right now and and doing um, a fair bit of radio shows and podcasts and some webinars. And there was a communication I sent out to, I've got a mailing list of about 25,000 people. And Um, You know, there's a bunch of people on that list that I don't know, and I I got an email response back from uh, a CEO in Florida. I will not mention the company name, but it's a big company that everybody knows, and they're in the restaurant hospitality industry. And his comment back to me, and this was a this was an email that having having to do with self care and connection to nature. And I was I was telling a very brief story about. Um, these two encircling hawks that were um, spinning and dancing on the updraft of the canyon breeze uh, right at sunset and it was just a, an incredibly moving like thirty second moment and it really touched me and and what it did is it uplifted me in after a day of just utter exhaustion and and his email back to me was really question mark How about a great, delicious?" Fill in the blank product um, during this time, and I I kind of loved that response because and and it actually and, and turned into this beautiful little uh, email dialogue that speaks directly to what you were just asking, Jenny, which is, you know, how can a brand remain relevant? And scratched to say in business during a time where certain businesses and industries are essentially cut off from their ability to even do work. And this is a CEO who um, is leading no doubt thousands of people uh, through probably hundreds of different stores that they have. And they're trying to figure out how do we remain in business and what does even the future of my staff look like and, and things to that nature. And one of the things he said to me is, you know, Steve, I, this is not intended at you because your email was quite potent and I really, really, appreciated it. But I don't know what people are thinking when I get now my my inbox is 10x filled with uh, communication from people, which is more or less the same regurgitated information over and over and over again, and um so to begin to answer the question at first, there was empathy within that particular string of conversation and and you know uh, and one of the things i I shot back to him was you know there 's a couple of mantras that i 'm deploying at this point, which is first and foremost, be of service, and I think. I think the real value of any brand uh, to begin with is to provide either a product or service that is of value to some group of customers out into the world. And while I think businesses and brands have the opportunity to still present who they are and express their character and their values, I believe that doubling down on how they can serve and how they can serve their their entire constituents and population at this point, including their partners, employees, and customers, is to be of service and care for them. And the second thing is just be unique. I think to send out a message that is more or less what other people are sending out, um, nobody needs to hear uh, what the policies are for COVID-19 in company XYZ anymore. Uh, But they do want to hear what that company might be doing differently or thinking about differently or serving differently. And I think those are very valuable messages. And I think then the third thing is to get back into the very basics of really what brand and marketing communication is all about, which is the simple sentence or simple question of what's in it for them. And the what's in it for them has to do with a value proposition and a service offering that offers some perspective of value and that what's in it for them these days can simply be, we're here to listen. Here's how we're taking care of our employees. When we start back up, here's what that's going to look like. Uh, our products are on sale or free like Zoom is doing right now. It's offering it free to certain um, uh, public schools and things like that because they're trying to uh, shift into, you know, how do we do online classes? But that I think that what's in it for them question is quite potent during these times.
0: A hundred percent. I'll build on that. I just spoke with my friend, Alyssa Duset, She's been on the podcast before. She runs a company called Craft Your Content and has a team. And I was so delighted to hear she's been busier than ever since this started because there's so much communicating going on. And her advice, which I hope it's okay with with her that I'm sharing this with all of you, but I, I love the way she put it. She said, so many companies are starting their communications by saying, here's what we're doing and here's how we're handling this. And it's all about them. And it's only at the end of the message, they get to what that means for the customer which is exactly the guidance you've just given. So she's been editing and helping her clients reshape to start every communication with, how are you doing? Here's something for you. Here's what might be on your mind. And only then later, if it's even still relevant saying kind of the behind the business stuff, but that that's not really what people need to know unless In my case, you know, I had certain appointments or things that's just not going to happen. And I I just also recorded a uh, conversation with Sarah Santa Croce, a mutual friend of ours now on being an empath and a highly sensitive person during this time. And this conversation about emails made me think of something that I want to get your take on. Hmm. I got um, more than one message saying, we've just laid off all our employees. And we hope to rehire them later, but we don't know how long this will last. I got so sad. Mm. I've been so sad reading about the companies that fired everybody. I don't know. It's just on my mind. And I know there are certain types of bricks and brick and mortar businesses that really don't have a choice. And maybe the government soon is going to, any day now, release something that encourages those businesses to keep people on some kind of payroll. I also read an article about, let's say, housekeeping services, housekeepers, some of whom are documented, some aren't, where all their clients are just texting, oh yeah, no need to come this week. And no matter how long they've been working with those families, they have no backup and no source of income. So Mm. this is now totally sideways (laughs) building on what's in it for the customer. But I do, I don't know. I just have certain sadness when I read how things are unfolding, but I guess that's just inevitable. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is part of the difficulty. Um, my friend Owen uh, O'Sullivan, we were doing a recording, which will go up online. Um, he was talking about, um, uh, the, the idea of flattening the curve as a metaphor and, and the poignancy of that and, you know, really, when you, when you think about that in its harshest terms, we're really trying to minimize the amount of deaths that take place um, because of this particular virus. And so when you begin to, if you were to just for a moment suspend the the harsh realities behind that and turn it into a metaphor, and then you think about that metaphorically from the business owner perspective, Um, the question of what is the right thing to do now? And, you know, some of that has to do with the question of survival. How does my business survive to uh, live another day so that we can continue perhaps to serve our customers? Um, Because it doesn't do, I mean, it's a really interesting philosophical consideration. It doesn't do any good to go out of business and no longer be able to serve those customers? Or is the trade-off that unfortunately we might have to make, or some businesses might have to make, is to lay off employees in order to survive and stay in business? And these are the very, very, very difficult questions that a lot of business owners are having to ask and answer and react and respond to in a way that has A significant amount of care and empathy for the employees and the people and the human beings who are actually being directly affected by this. And I think it's a very tough set set of questions. And I can't even count how many um, C level conversations I've had in the last week and a half uh, around that particular subject. And it's, I can promise you, it is not easy for them. And it is not easy for me to hold that space, but it's, it's, it is, in its own way, uh, its own set of beautiful questions.
0: Yes, and it's almost the impossible questions in a, in yeah. a sense because you're absolutely right. If they can't survive another day, they ha- you have to. You have to do whatever you can to stretch so the company has a chance to survive and hopefully rehire. And then the, uh, the third sort of option or thing that I've seen some companies doing is starting an employee relief fund which is its own conundrum and beautiful question because, well, I, at least what came up for me was I might want to support that business, but then wouldn't it, shouldn't I put that money toward like, you know, homeless, s- s- serving the homeless people who are hungry, people who, you know, so then you get this question of it's, it's so hard to pick and choose which businesses you're even going to say, oh yes, I'll donate to your employee relief fund. I mean, these are the times if only we could all be billionaires. Um, yeah. yeah. But I know we're I know we're reaching the end of our time together, yeah. which is so sad. Uh
1: would you mind if I share another short poem Please just do. to wrap this up? Oh, sort of I would poet, love that. Poetic foundation. I would love you know, it's that. It's interesting. Please do. so David talked David White talks about, you know, part of the part of the work that he does um and has been doing for years is in the corporate world. And he got <laughs> as he would as he would call it, he got cajoled into that. Um and it's mostly because in the corporate world, uh, there often isn't language for some of the difficulties that organizations grapple with in, in the complexity of the human dynamics of things. And poetry happens to have um, the ability to speak to that language with such poignancy.
0: <clears throat>
1: so this next this next last piece is, is a piece called um, We Look With Uncertainty. We look with uncertainty, beyond the old choices for clear-cut answers, to a softer, more permeable aliveness, which is every moment at the brink of death for something new is being born within us, if we but let it. We stand at a new doorway, awaiting that which comes, daring to be human creatures, vulnerable to the beauty of existence, learning to love.
0: Thank you and so that's
1: much. Ann Hillman.
0: Thank you so much, Steve. I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. And I want to invite listeners, if you have a follow-up question that you would love for Steve and I to tackle in a follow-up conversation, please let us know. You can submit it at pivotmethod.com ask. We said we probably would have so much more to cover in, in than just one conversation. And I always love your feedback of if the two of us were to ask how can we serve? What are some of your beautiful questions? Let us know. It's fitting for the topic that you would submit some of them for us. And we could always do another, another episode, just like this one, Steve, I can't thank you enough. Where can people find you and beyond the poem, which is so beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Is there any one thing you would leave listeners with before we go?
1: Mm, Yes. I would lead listeners back to that question of what is the promises that you can make to yourself here and now. Uh, And those promises might fall into the categories of how can I deploy radical self-care for myself and for those around me during this time? And what are the beautiful questions that you can form for yourself? And so people can find me at uh, my new website. It's um, Matter co.co m-a-t-t-e-r c-o dot c-o and uh there's a whole bunch of resources up there i i publish blogs uh at least a few times a month tons of free downloadable content and i'd love to hear from people on beautiful questions and jenny thank you so much for holding the space here today and doing what you do and your beautiful pivot work and all the the orbiting of uh of of human endeavors that you do. It's, it's quite beautiful work. And as you know, I'm a huge fan.
0: Well, thank you so much. Right back at you. And did you know, did you do this on purpose that matterco.co has Coco at the end of it, which is your (laughs) name? Did you know that?
1: No, I did not. It was totally not intentional at all, but I'm
0: seeing uh, it. Coco, it's right there.
1: Little Coco will love it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you, everybody, for listening.